enemies. Enemies to the left of us. Enemies to the right. Enemies in front of us. Enemies behind. Enemies all around us. Some of them are seen. Some are unseen. Sometimes, to quote the eminent philosopher Pogo, we have met the enemy and they is us. Enemies are all over seeking to do us great harm, or so the folks who want us to be on their side tell us. While we do have real enemies, they're not really so nefarious or numerous as we are sometimes told. Since we can agree that there are those who hate us, who would do us harm if given the chance, those who could be described as enemies, what do we do with them? Do we attack them, trying to get them before they get us? As some people misquote the uh, golden rule, do unto others before they do unto you. Do we try to own them or cancel them? Do we focus our attention on bringing them down? Do we hate our enemies, real or imagined? Ancient cultures before and after the first century dealt ferociously with their enemies, seeking to destroy them and wipe their ancestry from the earth. Many came up with some pretty horrific methods to torture and to kill those who opposed them. Some cultures would even eat their enemies as a way of destroying them. It was definitely a dog-eat-dog, kill-or-be-killed world, and there was no room for compassion or for mercy, let alone love. Now, the Jewish leaders in first-century Palestine taught that one should love their neighbor and hate their enemy. And that's what many of the Jews in that time believed. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it's in response to the question, well, who is my neighbor? The expert in the law was trying to justify himself when, Je um, when Jesus told him to go out and love his neighbor. He wanted to know just who his neighbor was so he could love him and hate his enemy, his non-neighbor. That's why the idea of a Samaritan showing kindness to a Jew was so scandalous. The Samaritans were their enemies. They were to be hated, not loved. There are passages in the Old Testament that seem to support the Pharisees' teaching of loving fellow Jews and hating enemies. When Israel entered the Promised Land, they were commanded to destroy the people living there and cleanse the land of their detestable practices. David wrote many what are called imprecatory psalms, psalms that called for God's judgment to fall on the enemies of Israel. In Psalm 139, David states, Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those that rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Well, we'll address those passages a little later. 
How does the world around us tell us to treat our enemies? We're told to hate them because, after all, they probably hate us. We're told to try to destroy them, either by bringing them down or, if need be, by killing them. Think of the previous buildups to the fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, where there was much talk of killing and destroying. There were songs on the radio about killing and destroying our enemies. Think back to previous wars. Kill the gooks. Kill the Japs. The only good Indian is a dead Indian. Kill the Rebs or kill the Yanks. Or kill the Redcoats, the Lobsters. Those who claim the Prince of Peace as their Lord are not immune. Ever since Constantine baptized his empire with Christianity, the church has been waging physical war against its enemies and killing those who did not bow the knee. Many of the wars in Europe have been fought in the name of Christ. The Crusades were fought in the name of Christ. Even the Reformers killed people in the name of Christ. The relatively recent bloodshed in Northern Ireland was caused by two Christian groups hating their enemies. And that has started up again, by the way, in Northern Ireland. So it's not over. There are those in positions of leadership within the church today who at least implicitly call for violence against those who disagree with them. So what does Jesus say? The last few weeks, we've been studying what Jesus the King taught about how his followers, his subjects, are to live. We've looked at the characteristics of those who were in his kingdom, people who were lowly, who know that they aren't all that, people who are meek, who don't push others around to get their way, people who are hungry for righteousness, who make peace, people who are persecuted because of all that. We've seen that our righteousness is to be a true righteousness of the heart, surpassing the outward law-keeping of the religious leaders. And we've seen how this kingdom righteousness works out in our relationships. Last week, we began to look at how to treat those who maybe don't treat us very well. One of the things in those verses that we looked at last week is that Jesus is not asking us to be doormats and let everyone walk all over us. If you look at those verses, let's look at those verses 38 to 42 quickly again. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go to him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
Back in those days, if a person was going to strike someone, they would use their right hand. Because the left hand was considered evil. It was dirty for some obvious reasons. So to be struck on your right cheek by someone with their right hand meant that they had to backhand you. You backhanded inferiors. That's what the Romans, the people who thought they were on top, did. When they struck someone, they backhanded them. Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. He's not saying, turn the other cheek, let him hit you again, and then go after him. He's saying, turn and face them so when they, if they strike you a second time, they have to strike you as an equal. They have to use the front of the hand. He is saying, in a sense, stand up to them, but stand up to them in a nonviolent way. Preserve your dignity and show that they are not superior. The idea of taking your tunic, letting them have your cloak. I was reading something uh, this week and uh, it struck me. What this is saying, the tunic, (coughs) excuse me, was the undergarment that they wore. And the cloak obviously was like a coat, the outer garment. So if someone sues you and takes your tunic, what Jesus is saying here, at least according to what I read, is let them have your outer garment as well. In other words, stand there naked before them. And again, the person has got to be thinking, no, wait a minute, I don't want, I don't want this person to, to be naked and go without clothing. So in a sense, you're still kind of retaining your dignity as a, as a human being made in the image of God, but you're not being violent against that person. And most people, you would think, would say, okay, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want the tunic either. Keep it. And if somebody wants to go a mile, <coughs> tells you to go a mile, go the second mile, Under Roman law, a Roman soldier could force a civilian to carry their armor one mile. By offering to go another mile, what they would be doing is if the Roman soldier agreed, he would be breaking his own law. And again, the idea is you're showing showing love to your enemy there. You're saying, hey, it's okay. It's okay. I love you. I'm going to keep going. And it probably would never happen because a Roman soldier could lose his life for breaking the law like that. So so how do we love our enemies? Well, let's see. So since we are looking at the teachings of our king about how we are to live, Since our desire is to obey him and live as subjects of the true king, let's look at what Jesus teaches about how we're to treat our enemies. Again, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, he said we're not to hate our enemies, but it's okay if we just kind of ignore them, right? No, what did Jesus say? We are to love our enemies. Does that mean we have to have warm, fuzzy feelings toward them? Not really. The Greek word that is translated love here is the word, anybody want to guess? Agape, exactly. The concept of agape love in scripture is a love that actively seeks the good of the other. It's love in action. So Jesus is saying that we are to actively seek the good of our enemies. And Jesus is the best example of what loving your enemies looks like. Even though he spoke harshly to those who hated him, called them vipers and other things, which they were, he never sought to harm them. They were under God's judgment for rejecting him. But those who did repent and desire to follow him were welcomed. His words of judgment were because by rejecting him, they were rejecting God and were judging themselves. In the end, he didn't call down fire from heaven or legions of angels to smite his enemies. He gave himself up to the most shameful and horrible death imaginable. And he asked his father to forgive his enemies. In a sense, he left the door open for any who might later think about what they had done, repent, and give him their allegiance. The Christians in the first century were known for their love for one another. They were also known for their love for their enemies. Stephen, in Acts 4, as he was being stoned to death by the mob, prayed, <clears throat> excuse me, prayed that God would not hold that sin against them. In Romans 12, Paul states that we are not to seek revenge on those who do us harm, but instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. <clears throat> if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Paul is quoting Proverbs 25. There are a few different interpretations of the meaning of getting burning coals, putting burning coals on someone's head. And none of the ones that I saw talk about it being as something to get back at them. You, know, you think burning coals on somebody's head is going to be painful. But none of the sources I looked at mentioned that as, as a meaning for this. Some commentators state that the burning coals is the shame that a person might feel when they receive good treatment in response to their mistreatment. 
Others say it could mean simply leaving room for God's judgment on them rather than seeking to carry that out ourselves. There's a sense, I think, in which we are too, as it states in Romans 12, leave any vengeance up to God. Now, I tend to agree with the commentators who looked at the historical context of the passage. Those of you who know me know that I'm all about historical context. They interpret it as showing love to an enemy by meeting their physical needs. Back in ancient times, a fire was vital, especially in areas where it got very cold at night. If a household's fire went out, someone would go to a neighbor and ask for burning coals to put the fire in again, start the fire again. These coals would generally be carried in a basket on top of the head. Now, you would expect a neighbor to gladly heap up a few coals on the head of a needy neighbor, loving your neighbor, right? But is that something an enemy would do? Eh, Not usually. Paul is giving us a concrete example of how to love our enemies, provide for their needs, do good to them. By doing this, we will overcome evil with good rather than being overcome by evil. Now, the Christians living in the Roman Empire were known for their love for those who hated them, doing good to them when the situations arose, even to the point of taking care of victims of plagues that would strike the cities from time to time while the pagans fled. They did this sometimes at the cost of their own lives. As the church became more Gentile, the issue of whether or not to serve in the Roman army came up. Now, there wasn't one set opinion or doctrine on military service. It's evident that men who were already in the army and became Christians were not barred from membership in the churches. Although the Church of Alexandria evidently showed a lot of disfavor in receiving soldiers into membership and only permitted members to enlist in the army under extreme circumstances. And I read somewhere, and I couldn't find the source, that some churches would not allow soldiers in their membership. Many of the early church fathers wrote against Christians serving in the military. Tertullian wrote a treatise forbidding Christians from military service. Origen also condemned military service. And Lactantius wrote that a just man may not be a soldier. One reason was that serving in the Roman military meant pledging allegiance to the emperor and all that went along with that. There were rituals such as burning incense, sacrificing animals, and offering grain offerings to local deities that were a part of a Roman soldier's life. So obviously, a Christian does not want to be doing that. Another reason, though, that many church leaders spoke against Christians in the military was the fact that the military basically is designed to break things and kill people. Lactanius wrote, killing itself is banned. 
and killing a human being is always wrong. Tertullian said, the Lord, by taking away Peter's sword, disarmed every soldier thereafter. He also said, we are not allowed to wear any uniform that symbolizes a sinful act, meaning killing someone. Down through the centuries, there have been Christians who have taken the command to love our enemies to mean that we shouldn't kill them and have opted out of military service. And this is one of those areas where I think it's best to leave it up to an individual's conscience, how God would lead them. Because it wasn't clear in the first century, and it's, I don't think it's as clear today either. Now, some have seen Jesus' words in Luke 22 as telling the disciples to arm and be ready to fight. In verses 35 to 38, Luke records, Jesus asks them, When I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword... Sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Well, the problem with taking these words as Jesus telling his disciples to arm themselves and be ready to fight is that just a few verses later, when Peter clumsily tries to defend Jesus by attacking the servant of the high priest, Jesus tells him, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So what did Jesus mean? Well, the sources I looked at basically come down on both sides of the should Christians defend themselves with force debate. Some look at the entirety of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and see Jesus telling the disciples in this passage to buy a sword as a metaphorical statement about how things are going to get very tough in the future. Possibly. Others look at 2237, where Jesus speaks about being numbered with the transgressors and state that his disciples having two swords was enough for that to happen. It's interesting, the tie-in. Why would Jesus say, and he was numbered with the transgressors, this must be fulfilled in me, immediately after telling them to buy a sword? They don't seem to fit. But the fact that the disciples had two swords on them in the garden when the Jewish authorities came to arrest Jesus would be enough for them to say, see, he's a transgressor. They were armed. They were ready for a rebellion. Fulfilling that passage. Two swords is not going to be enough for 11 people. It would not be enough for them to defend themselves. So I, I think it had to mean it was going to fulfill this prophecy. There are a number of passages in the New Testament that direct Christians to not return evil for evil. Romans 12, 14 and 17 to 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. James 1, 20. And 1 Peter 3, 9 through 11, among others. 
Now, others do see Jesus as telling his disciples that they should be ready to defend themselves. Telling somebody what to do in the area of self-defense is way above my pay grade. So don't even ask me about it. Because, again, that's another issue that's left between an individual and God. I will say that I believe Jesus is telling us that we should leave it to him to take care of us. I think Christians today live too much in fear. Jesus himself and the early Christians faced unimaginable opposition and persecution. Tradition tells us that every disciple except John was executed, and they tried to execute John. Yet we look at their testimony, and we don't see them calling down sufferings, fire and brimstone on their enemies. We see them reckoning their sufferings as somehow filling up the sufferings of Christ. And I don't totally know what that all means, but somehow they saw that as being a part of the sufferings of Christ. They put themselves in God's hands and trusted him to do what was right and good, no matter what. I don't believe that Jesus would have us do any differently. Now, how that may shake out for each one of us, that's best left up to him. There are other examples down through the ages of Christians loving their enemies and doing good to those who persecute them. The loving way that the Amish in 2006 gathered around the widow of the man who had come in and killed all those girls and then himself was one of those. The way the Christians in the Middle East have not fought against those who have beheaded many of them, willingly giving their lives as people of the cross. The Spirit has used that to bring Muslims to himself. And these are just two pictures of the power of loving one's enemies. Now, another question that comes up when we are faced with the teaching to love our enemies is what do we do with the imprecatory psalms? They are part of inspired scripture. So what part do they play for the Christian? I looked at a number of sources. It's amazing what you can find out there. And found a few things to keep in mind. The first is to remember that the psalmist was not writing so much about himself as about the people of God. And every imprecatory psalm was concerned with the glory and the honor of God. When David says that he hates the enemies of God with a perfect hatred, it's because he has completely identified himself with the cause of God. And I believe that we would do well to be careful in claiming that we identify ourselves completely with the cause of God in this world. We should remember that our mission here is not to take a land and conquer a land like the Israelites. Our mission is to seek the lost and to bring them into the family of God. Another thing to keep in mind is the fact that most of the Psalters 
most of the psalms are nonviolent in nature. And the imprecatory psalms are a minor, small percentage of all of them. And then the other thing, another thing is we should also keep in mind we need to recognize the sovereignty of God in all things. Even in cases where it seems like his enemies are getting the upper hand. And lastly, we should remember there's a vast difference between asking God to act justly for his children and against those who hate him and cursing or attacking our enemies ourselves. Loving our enemies is another example of a heart righteousness, a righteousness that goes beyond the outward righteousness of the religious. In verse 45, Jesus says that by showing this love, we are revealing the image of God in us. Our Father sends rain on the unjust as well as the just, so his children show grace and love to all. It's a part of the family likeness. The next two verses ask, if you love only those who love you or greet those only who greet you, how are you any different from the tax collectors and the pagans? Even those who don't know God, too good to those who do good to them. They treat well those who treat them well because that's a natural thing to do. But it's a surface thing. Let one of them feel mistreated by another and watch the claws come out. I think that's a large part of the reason of, for the division and strife in the culture today. You look at a lot of the shootings, a lot of the things that happen. They happen because somebody did something to me. And sometimes it's friends. It's crazy. The outward veneer of love for those who love you has been torn. And what is in the heart comes out. Again, part of the family likeness. We are to do differently because our hearts are different. Jesus wraps up this passage by calling us to be perfect as our Father is perfect. There are some who take this verse to say that we should strive to be sinless. There are certain writers and speakers who have said in this verse that Jesus is telling us to strive for sinless perfection. One writer wrote that the only standard of the Bible that is ever identified is absolute 100% sinless moral perfection. If you're sinless, raise your hand. Don't do it. Right, exactly, exactly. So much for that. Now, others state that Jesus is setting the standard so high here that we can never measure up and so have to depend on the righteousness of Christ. I think there's something in that view. Because it's obvious we can never live without sin. And our only righteousness comes from Christ. This is definitely something that is taught in Scripture. I don't think, though, that that's what Jesus is saying here. The Greek word translated perfect in our English translation is teleos, which can mean perfect, but according to the context, can also be translated finished, brought to completion, 
lacking nothing or mature. I believe that looking at the context of verse 48, the word perfect could best be translated mature or complete as it is in 1 Corinthians 2.6, Philippians 3.15, and Hebrews 5.14. In Luke 6.36, the parallel passage to this, Jesus' words are translated, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I believe what Jesus is saying here is by loving our enemies, we are loving in the same mature, complete, perfect way that our Father loves It's a love that is merciful, a perfect love. Again, it goes back to the idea of a righteousness that goes beyond what John Stott calls law dodging, to a righteousness that comes from the heart, comes from inside who we are because we are God's children. Theologian Herman Ritterboss makes this point. As for Matthew 5.48, Jesus does not, in any universal sense, demand of man moral equality with God. The word perfect, as used here, denotes quite a different meaning. It concerns the perfectness, the consistency of love. Man is bound not only to love his neighbor, but also his enemies. It is in this sense that the Heavenly Father, too, is perfect. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. There is no room in his love for half measures. Hence, perfect love is also demanded from his children, not partial, not only toward friends, but enemies as well. Hence also Luke can add in the corresponding passage in his gospel, be ye merciful even as your father is merciful. Even as means equally perfect, equally consistent. Therefore, it is not possible to appeal to this to contend the positive tenor of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. It belongs to the essential quality, I might well say to the logic of the kingdom of heavens, that a disciple of Jesus does not content himself with love merely toward his fellows. Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies, just as our Father does. Is it hard? Yep. Actually, it's impossible in our own strength without the Spirit of God. But wait, there's more. There is good news. The good news is that if we belong to Christ, we are children of God, and we do have his Spirit living in us. People that know our family know that when I was born, my parents were going to name me Douglas. But when my mom looked at me, she said, that's not a Douglas, that's, that's Fred. Because she knew that as I grew, I would be the spitting image of my dad. And I am, for better or for worse. And all my life, I've had people telling me that they see my dad in me. We have a baby picture of Josh. And when we put it next to my baby picture, you'd have a hard time telling us apart in many ways. If you look at Josh, you see me and him. That's what it's like being a child of the Father. As we grow and as we mature, as we learn more and more from Jesus and spend time with him, 
the righteousness from the heart that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees will become more and more a part of us. We will begin to look more and more like our Father, and others will see more and more of Jesus in us. And living righteous will become more and more natural to us. We won't have to ask, what would Jesus do? We'll just naturally do it. That's what growing in grace does for us. That's the good news. Is as God works in us, we become more and more like him.